This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Welcome to the Hash, everybody. You're watching Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Seward. We got Wendy O. We got Sam Kessler. We got the news of the day to get to, and it is going to be fun. Let's do this thing. I'm starting us off. We're doing a quick update on Binance. According to a report in the information, Binance nearly shuttered its U.S. operations to protect its global bread and butter. Now, Binance is a top dog when it comes to crypto volumes globally, and they decided maybe at one point to cut off the U.S. to preserve the breadwinner of the global brand. Uh, According to the information, at least, that was not able to uh, be decided upon, and the Binance U.S. continues apace. So we'll talk about that one first, and then we'll shift gears and talk about some really interesting data about Binance still being quite operational in China, despite an alleged crypto ban over there. Let's talk about the US thing first, and then we'll shift gears over to China. Wendy, what do you think about this report from the information and what's being alleged here? Smart move, bad move? I don't blame them. Why would you stay somewhere where you are not treated best? A really good friend of mine, Mark Moss, always says, go where you are treated best. And I remembered that, and I still remember that today. Why would any crypto company want to continue to stay in the United States of America? All they seem to be doing is just wasting their money. I want to say that Ripple has spent over $200 million approximately on their lawsuit against the SEC. And that money could have been used not only to you know, hire more people to build, to expand, but I do know that they have a very extensive educational um, fund that they do send out to different colleges or you know, different communities to help people actually understand what blockchain technology is and about you know, whatever. So I feel like a lot of people are just kind of tired. They're getting fed up. We're seeing a lot of companies move over to the Middle East um, and over to Asia. There's a lot of money flowing over there in the United States, not so much. And we're also seeing a lot of other companies create um, shops, set up shops in other countries. I want to say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say A16Z created something elsewhere, Coinbase and Gemini and all these other companies are establishing branches overseas because that's a lot more regulatory friendly. And I feel like the US is kind of shooting themselves in the foot. And I want to say there's some other reports coming out um, about how over leveraged we are monetary wise, and it just does not looking too terribly great here. And I'm also considering relocating as well, because if I can't work here in the US, if I can't do my crypto stuff, then what am I going to do? That's no fun. And also, I like to be able to be a content creator. And I don't know if I could do that in the US anymore, because we don't have any clear types of guidelines. I mean, if I can maybe chime in on this, I think whether or not it's a good thing for crypto, it's certainly it seems like the intended outcome or one of the intended outcomes of, um, you know, Gensler's crackdown on the industry, whether or not um, any of these cases or most of these cases have been settled yet. Clearly, it's having the intended effect of chasing business out of the United States. And I agree with you. I don't know why they would stay in the United States, because not only is it a huge headache, but as um, you know, recent reporting about, for example, um, Binance's huge China market has underscored, the US is not a huge market for Binance or for many of these other exchanges that are not primarily based in the United States. So I don't know why they'd stay here for that reason alone. And then one more thing that I thought was crazy about a lot of the stuff with this whole um, report is just around the board meeting itself, where there was division within the company around what to do here. It's not like they were kind of wavering and CZ decided, okay, we're not going to do this after thinking he would, this being pulling out from the United States. There was a board vote 
And the head of the U.S. exchange decided that he didn't want to leave who chairs that board. And that's kind of what happened. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall of that meeting. Wendy, what do you think? Just really quickly before giving it over to Zach, like I feel like Binance did the best that they could. Like they were operating in the U.S. They had all these products and services. The U.S. is like, hey, we don't really want you to have these here. You can't do that. So when they were told that, they went ahead and left. And that was due to no regulatory clarity by the SEC or other public servants. And in response to them, you know, kind of closing off the U.S. market, because I remember Binance, I used to trade on Binance. I loved it. It was a really great exchange. And then I want to say it was summer of 2020. They're like, okay, you have to KYC. And if you're a U.S. citizen, you can't use it anymore. So they gradually pushed people off, but they did it in a very ethical way. And in response to that action from, from the SEC or whomever, they created Binance US, which had like five different trading pairs. And you can basically just buy, sell and do limit orders. They didn't have anything. You know, they had a very bare exchange there, which they wanted to become as compliant as they could. And again, that still wasn't good enough for the US, which again, should be very problematic. And I know that's not how the law works, but I wish that it did. And they could just see all of the horrible choices that the SEC has made and Binance and other crypto asset companies have been doing their best to accommodate non-existing regulation. Zach? Yeah, good segue to the other piece of Binance news that came out today by way of the Wall Street Journal. Something like 20% of global volumes uh, come from China. Now, this is a surprise to some observers in crypto who say, hey, wait a minute, China has a crypto ban. A lot of informed observers, especially Emily Parker, who works at Coindesk, have been sounding this alarm for a while. This is not a uh, ironclad ban by any means, right? This is a very porous ban. And crypto activity has been taking place in China despite this alleged ban for a number of years. Now we get some fresh data from some reporting by way of the Wall Street Journal suggesting that China really is a big part of the mix when it comes to the total trading volume that Binance sees on a daily basis. Pretty crazy to see this breakdown and really speaks to the continued activity interest and um, excitement that crypto finds in Asia relative to a more dour and gloomy picture here in the US specifically. You're seeing trade volume by country, China, South Korea are the top two. Let's talk about this report as well. Sam, I'll throw this your way. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there were some crazy things in this report. And I'm glad you flagged Emily Parker. She has been sounding the alarm bell or whatever you want to call it bell on this for a while. This ban is not really a ban. As with many of the things that we hear coming out of China, there are ways to get through them. VPNs are ubiquitous in the country. But anyway, some of the crazy things in this report, I mean, it was not just the number of or the amount um, rather of cryptocurrency or the value of cryptocurrency that's traded on the platform. It was the number of wallets as well, or the number of users that Binance apparently has recorded as it's transacting there. I think it was close to a million. 900,000, I think, is the number that's you know coming to my mind. Don't quote me on that, but it's something massive. The other thing that I thought was crazy about this, too, is that it really does just highlight the opaqueness of Binance as a company. The fact that not only did we not realize that China, what we being you know the general public, realized that China was a big customer of this platform, which makes sense. They didn't want to show us this, but for, for reasons. But not only did we not realize that it was a big customer, but apparently the biggest. That's just crazy. And it just shows you how little we still understand about Binance, like it or not. Wendy, what do you think? I've got friends that are very active in crypto and our builders do all kinds of really great stuff. And they are in China. And for the last couple of years, they said, no, China, it's not that crypto is really banned here. People are still using it. So I just feel like there's a big disconnect from what's actually happening and the news that we the news that we're presented in the United States. And again, that's not that has nothing to do with Coindesk reporters. It has to do with more mainstream media news. 
and some of the reports that they're giving out talking about what's going on in China. I feel like a lot of these reports are not necessarily accurate. And again, the only thing I do want to pick on you for with the the wallet creations or having more using that number of wallet creations as active users, I don't feel like that's ever accurate. Like I always have at least like two to three accounts on different exchanges for different OPSEC reasons for different positions that I'm opening and different types of trading styles I'm doing. So that's the only thing I want to say. But I do believe China has been playing 4D chess with us the entire time. They've kind of been silently doing things. Yes, that they're very um, controlling over what their people can and can't do. But at the end of the day, they're not going to let the U.S. outdo them when it comes to tech. And I just feel like America just keeps looking like a bigger and bigger laughing stock of the world at this time. Just want to put a finer point on what Sam said about, you know, uh, Binance being a black box, right? And I think that's very true and very remarkable feature of the crypto space that these open ledgers, which provide unprecedented transparency toward uh, financial matters, uh, still are largely sort of administered through these centralized uh, exchanges, centralized companies that are the opposite of transparent, are very opaque. And it takes reporting such as this to reveal some of those details that otherwise aren't on chain, aren't visible to anyone who wants to look into it. So anyway, I just thought that was a good point, Sam. Shout out to you. Sir, the banks, the banks, traditional finance, you can't track cash. Anyways, we could talk, I could talk about this all day also, long. Also are they, K- also are they KYCing all the China? I mean, that's another question too. all the users in China. Like, is there a database somewhere in Binance? Because that goes to the account thing as well. Like, I, I didn't read closely okay. enough, but I don't know if those were Binance accounts or if those were addresses, the 900,000 figure that apparently was the right now. I don't even know what that corresponds to. But if there's any number, there's probably a list somewhere. And if it were really illegal, you know, we know who has it. Anyway, it's just dun, dun, a really dun. interesting story. It is indeed. In the report itself, I will say it's noted as active users, whether or not that is an accurate representation, one-to-one, wallet-to-person. Hard yeah. to say. It's a level of nuance that sometimes doesn't make it into the final cut. Anyway, Wendy, you got the next story. Wendy and her 80,000 wallet addresses are the most <laughs> random things <laughs> ever. My CPA absolutely hates me. I mean, if you guys need a CPA, you can use mine. Anyways, we got to talk about this story because I don't like WorldCoin. And yes, I'm fudding it live on the show. Coin wow. TV and hash. Okay, so the Kenyan government suspends WorldCoin activity on financial security and privacy concerns. And you know what? I don't blame them for doing that. This is one time when I do think the government should step in and protect their people. For the most part, I can protect myself. I can handle myself. I'm from the streets. But when we're talking about something like this that is directly infringing on your privacy, like they're literally giving you $50 for all your biometric data, which is really scary. Like, I don't know who these people are. If somebody was to walk up to me and like, hey, Wendy, can I have one of your socks? I'd be like, heck no, you can't. I wouldn't even let somebody look into my wallet or my purse. But anyways, Kenya suspended WorldCoin operations due to concerns about public safety and the integrity of financial transactions. The country's financial security and data protection services will investigate the legitimacy and data protection of the project. And then the Kenya Interior Cabinet Secretary said any individual or legal entity found involved supporting, aiding or abetting WorldCoin activity will face appropriate actions. Oh, wait, the number went down. Registered users were entitled to 25 free WorldCoin tokens worth about $2. You can't even buy it. You can't even go to McDonald's and use the value menu anymore for under $2 or $2. Come on, man. No, no. The token is like two, the token is like $2. Oh, yeah, yeah, I read yeah. that wrong. Wait, it's 25. Okay. No, it just, says no. Registered users were entitled to 25 free world token. Well, I don't whatever. I don't care. It's still not enough for me. Go ahead. Fact it's check okay. me. Correct me. It's Zach. okay. I just looked up the price. Coin market cap says $2.50 per world coin. So yeah, that's a sweet, sweet $50 airdrop for your retinal scan. Full disclosure, I did this last week in Japan. I offered up my eyeballs 
to Sam Altman to get a world ID. And I'm glad I did it. So you guys can FUD this project all you want, but I'm ready for the AI future. My unique stuff is encoded. It's all encrypted. I think that there's a lot of craziness about this story because it is and has always been rather absurd that this is the security mechanism for preventing Sybil attacks on this network. I will say it's crazy, but you know what? I did it. So are you an investor that. now? So now do you have to no, disclose? I'm a no. world coin investor. I'm a world no, coin I'm whale. Just, I'm just a, I just, I, I'm a respecter of the orb. No, you know, I go up to the orb and I just go up to it. I just have my world ID. So don't worry about me. But I, I did it. I did it. I lived to tell the tale. I, you expect me to FUD it. I can't believe I said FUD. I never say it. But you expected that <laughs> from me. I'm not actually going to do that this time around. I actually think that WorldCoin, despite all of the insane privacy you know, issues and um, things that are glazed over, is a, in many ways, honest attempt at finding an application for crypto. And we've been asking for applications for the longest time. I mean, we do KYC with Binance. We do KYC with Coinbase. We give our, you know, face scans to our iPhones <laughs> and we use those scans to, you know, log. It, it's just, I do think that a lot of what WorldCoin is trying to do is, yes, 100% antithetical to the founding ethos of Bitcoin and Ethereum and a lot of these ecosystems. But that being said, I do think that it might be in a world where we're willing to give our identity to even a you know centralized platform um, in a lot of ways. I think it is kind of an iterative improvement on our existing you know identity apparatus. That being said, I do think it's fraught with a ton of issues. I think that the fact that they have this world coin leads to this really weird, cynical incentive game where people not in the United States and not in the West are, are encouraged to, you know, give their eyeballs for $50. Even if it was $2, you know, it can buy you a lot more in some places than it can in the United States. I think that's really cynical. I also think that they haven't thought about a lot of the potential abuses, not just in terms of the privacy, putting that all aside, but in terms of people buying your KYC or people pretending to be WorldCoin and scanning your retinas and using those for, you know, who knows what. I think there are a ton of things around the edges. But I don't think that Sam Altman is trying to harvest our eyeballs to make money because he's got a million of other other ways to to make money off of AI, even though yeah, he apparently doesn't. But own data, but this AI. this type of data is worth a lot. Like that's not something that is t is spoken about or talked about. But people's data, like our search history, like like the biometric data, all of this stuff, like anything anything that you can extract from a human is worth money. And there's companies that are willing to buy this for a lot of money. So. I would love to see the but disclosures. And see where, it, are they a, encrypting there's it? A, there's a, I mean, yeah, that's the idea. They're using proofs and they're encrypting these things okay. on device. Like, so it's no less encrypted. I can't believe I'm defending um, anything um, in general. But I'm going to say this and it, when I this, see you, I'm going to yeah. be like, this is what you said. <laughs> anyway, hey, you got to play, you know, devil's advocate. Preach, Sam. Preach, brother. <laughs> World coin. We don't wow. debate enough, at least when I'm on. Let's um, do not it. Arguments. You I had to do thing. it because... I mean, you know, it just makes for good content. When you have the one guy in the show who's <laughs> given his eyeballs to Sam Altman and you have the other people on the show saying it's awful, that right there, that's why you're here. Thanks, viewers. Of course, we couldn't end this episode without talking about all the craziness going on in DeFi markets after that huge hack on Curve, one of the biggest exchanges on Ethereum over the weekend. You might remember one of the um, outcomes of that hack was that the price of Curve, this big important token, sunk, which put a huge loan, a huge position on Aave, the lending platform, 
across and a bunch of other lending platforms at risk. So essentially, Michael Egorov, the head of Curve, had a bunch of the supply of Curve, put about 30% of it in collateral to back loans that he used to buy who knows what. Apparently, houses were involved. Who knows? You can look at reporting on that in Coindesk and elsewhere. But anyway, if that loan gets liquidated, a bunch of bad things happen for the entire DeFi ecosystem because this $200 million worth of tokens gets sold to the market and further suppresses the price of Curve, this really important token. So now the news today, as Sharia has reported, is that Aave, its risk management you know, partner called Gauntlet, which is you know, used throughout DeFi, they have proposed now for the second time, actually, that Aave block um, or Aave's community block um, borrowing of these curve tokens, essentially making it so that positions like this can't get bigger and can get wound down more easily. I don't know. It, it's a it's a crazy story, Zach. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is DeFi composability at its worst, right? Like DeFi composability is heralded as a way to make things uh, innovate uh, on themselves faster. But then you see situations like this where there's all this interconnectedness and subsequent platforms get ensnared in what uh, previously would have been an ugly incident confined to one thing. Now it sort of spreads across the ecosystem. I did want to ask you about that gauntlet thing, Sam, because that's a, uh, a detail that I think is worth mentioning. The gauntlet had flagged a similar problem previously that wasn't acted on, previously meaning like weeks or months ago. Is that right? The first, the first instance yeah. of gauntlet. Uh, half. Exactly, raising red flag. So a lot of people are sort of like grumpy that you know, that advice wasn't acted upon earlier. But now you have people stepping in, uh, in the heat of battle, trying to address, again, some of these ramifications that are rippling out across the DeFi ecosystem. And, you know, we enter into really funny situations where all of a sudden Justin Sun is backstopping a pretty critical piece of the DeFi landscape. So anyway, I think, again, to me, these are composability stories. I think composability in DeFi is super cool. But also the flip side of composability is this interconnectedness that ultimately can lose people lots of money um, through no fault of their own, right? And so I think we're seeing that kind of play out, again, with two really foundational pieces of the DeFi ecosystem. So that to me is the, the big picture, but some of that granularity, some of that detail, especially around some of those, uh, those advisements from Gauntlet, I think is worth, uh, worth uh, picking up on. So thanks for flagging that as well. I don't know, Wendy, what do you think about this? The whole curve thing and the whole Australian mansions, there is uh, a degree of, of richness in this story as well. Okay. So to me, there's a lot of different parts here. The thing that stands out the most is the crypto DeFi contagion, because we saw the crypto contagion with centralized entities, and now we're seeing it with DeFi. And we're seeing this because it sounds like a lot of people over leveraged, over collateralized, bet too much money and didn't practice risk management. And now we're starting to see somewhat of a collapse of the DeFi sector. Do I think DeFi is going to go away? No. Do I think DeFi is still in beta? Yes. I think that we will figure out how to recover from this. I don't know what, how long it's going to take. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I think it's awesome that Justin Sun stepped in. But at the same time, like the more big whales we have step in, wouldn't that essentially kind of centralize a lot of these entities in some aspects, depending on how much liquidity they're adding or what the deal is with the tokens? Um, and then the separate story is the gentleman that bought a lot of very expensive real estate. And I know crypto Twitter is like kind of jumping on it and talking about it, but that's kind of pocket watching. <laughs> And I don't know if that's really relevant to this particular story. That person had specific tokens because he was a founder or because he did X and it was essentially payment for his services. So what that person decided to do with that money that was not stolen from the project that he was granted either due to a DAO or to the community or however it was structured, 
that's kind of his personal business. And I don't think that necessarily relates to the particular story of the DeFi contagion. However, if he is over leveraged and he owns a large amount and it's ca- that's causing issues, then it could potentially relate. But at the same time, I don't know if they're directly related or it's just a fun talking piece because people love drama. Sam? I mean, the, the last quick point that I'll say here, well, two things. First off, I recommend that everybody read the um, op-ed that Daniel Kuhn posted to Coindesk. Um, I think it was today or yesterday. DeFi died and we didn't even notice, which covers obviously with a more opinionated voice than we're giving even here, um, you know, what went on and why it's scary for DeFi. Some of the stuff you've mentioned, on, uh, mentioned Wendy with big whales. And the last thing, you know, that I'll say on the Harold Curve situation is just that I, I think it really does underscore the role that Coindesk and other, you know, crypto focused media outlets need to continue to play and play in a bigger way in terms of calling out potential, you know, red flags. This loan we had reported on about a month ago was public knowledge. And yet Curve was considered a blue chip decentralized finance protocol in the same realm as Uniswap and Abe and others. And I'm curious if other red flags exist out there for either those platforms or other quote unquote blue chips. This is something that people should have been yelling about rather than just, you know, talking about in side conversations for a while now. So Anyway, we should have seen this coming. Maybe not the hack, of course, but you know the systemic risk posed by that specific loan and the token system that he had put together. Okay, Zach, over to you. Hooray for crypto journalism. Good stuff. So we're going to talk about GameStop here. GameStop, video game retailer, one-time meme stock, had adventured into crypto and is now removing the wallet functionality from its iOS and wallet extension apps. Citing regulatory uncertainty, can't do fun stuff with tokens in the U.S. because you might get sued as an unregistered securities exchange. That's what GameStop is saying, at least. We'll talk about this briefly. I don't know. What's there to say? Wendy, what do you say in 10 seconds about GameStop? This is not shocking to me. The predatory actions of the SEC have completely outdone themselves, and I'm very, very proud to be an American. Sam, top that. 10 seconds. The memes, the memes are over. GameStop, Gensler you know, wallets, I don't know, all these buzzwords in one story. I feel like, you know, Wendy's going to cry from this. They're, they're not over. Wag me might be over. Um, and I think this is a, a perfect story to kind of encapsulate the depth of that, that attitude stuff. All right. Well, we're going to have fun stand poor over here. I am Zach Seward. That is Sam Kessler. <laughs> Wendy O, Americans all. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great day. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 